Hello, it's Lit listeners. It's Maisha, and as you might have noticed, we've been on a little bit of a hiatus recently. But fear not, we are set to return next week, and we have a lot of new episodes coming your way with a bunch of super talented writers. We thank you for your patience and for giving me some time to read, and hope in the meantime you enjoy this rebroadcast of our conversation with the one and only Nikki Giovanni. Welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots Editor-in-Chief, here with the Managing Editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Kai. Hey! We have such a legendary guest today, the revered poet, Ms. Nikki Giovanni. Nikki has published more than 30 collections of poetry in her career, including her self-published 1968 debut volume, Black Feeling, Black Talk, and the 2009 New York Times bestselling Bicycles Love Poems. She has won numerous awards, including seven NAACP Image Awards, the Rosa Parks Women of Courage Award, an American Book Award, the Langston Hughes Award, and has also been named one of Oprah Winfrey's 25 Living Legends. Now, Nikki has a new collection of poems out called Make Me Rain, and we have the distinct honor of talking to her about it. I mean, honor actually feels like an understatement. It was so amazing to talk with Nikki. Um, it's amazing to be able to call her Nikki, which she did say we could call her. Uh, you know, I have followed this woman's work. I feel like all my life, I feel like the collected works of Nikki Giovanni was like one of the first like grown up books I bought to put on my bookshelf in my first apartment. And I still have it. So the ability to sit here and talk with someone who I think, you know, we use the phrase national treasure a lot, but I think, you know, an international treasure when it comes to letters and poetry and American works and just Black thought. I mean, you know, having been part of the civil rights movement, the Black arts movement and more, I I just, Black feeling, Black talk doesn't begin to <laughs> encompass <laughs> what what we experience in this conversation. I'm I'm just so... No, she's a Black legend, a Black leader, you know, in this space when it comes to literature, when it comes to poetry. She is an icon. And we should also mention, we got the honor of speaking with Nikki from her home in Virginia. So at certain points during this conversation, you might hear her dog in the background. It was unavoidable, but we hope it doesn't distract too much from the brilliant things she had to say. And with that, it feels like time to get to the interview. What do you say, Maisha? I say, you know, let's let's do this recording from home. No reason to wait. <laughs> awesome. Hello, Nikki. Hello, how are you? I'm doing great. <laughs> Welcome to It's Lit. <laughs> Thank you. We are so honored to have you with us today. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's no trouble. You're like a legend. How could we not invite you? I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> like we jumped right on it as soon as we knew you were available. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so this podcast is about books and writers, specifically Black books and writers. And we start every episode by asking every guest to name at least one book 
or a piece of writing that they've considered life changing, life altering, that like just blew their mind and showed all the possibilities of the universe. What was that book or books for you? Well, that the poem would be For My People by uh, Margaret Walker. It's a fabulous poem, mm. and uh, she just makes it a powerful statement that this is the way we are. Because we've come through this, this is what I'm offering. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful poem. I, I'm sure everybody knows it. If they don't, we'll make sure to link to it. Oh, <laughs> so exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Margaret's a great, we miss her, she's gone, but uh, Margaret's a great poet, and I think did not get as much attention as she could, as she should have, but um, For My People is outstanding, no no question about it. Excellent choice. So, Nikki, you are undeniably one of the heroes of American poetry and letters, and you're certainly a hero of myself and Mayusha's. You've published over 30 collections of poetry since you first published in 1968, including volumes for children and several albums. And in October this year, you released Make It Rain. Make Me Rain, I'm sorry. Make It Rain. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's I'm another throw volume. some dollars in the air at your book. <laughs> if we were in California, um, <laughs> they would say absolutely. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. In October of this year, you released Make Me Rain, a collection of poems and prose which intimately explores topics ranging from the evolution of white supremacy under Donald Trump to the deaths of Black creativity as a function of survival. In one of the poems, A Query, you write, I'm so glad I'm Black because we know there is salvation. Obviously, when you wrote that passage, you couldn't have anticipated this year in American history, as your career has now spanned several decades and pivotal moments throughout our history together here in the United States. What has this year taught you, you know, anything new about Black survival and salvation? Or do you consider what's been happening in 2020 just a case of history repeating itself? Oh, I, I like 2020. I um was invited by Kevin Powell, and I don't know if you know Kevin, but uh, yeah, mm-hmm. he, he's doing an anthology, yeah. And I think everybody's been been saying, you know, 2020 was awful, but I think 2020 was really good. 2020 caused us to stay in, and that was good. And for people like me, and and for actually anybody that had a window, you you ended up planting a garden, you you ended up you know growing some some herbs, which was very nice. And if you were living in a, uh, any kind of city, and I don't know about, I should say, you know, more country that in the evening about five o'clock, you ended up sitting on your deck. Or if you were lucky, I have a cousin who has a front porch and, um, she and her husband would sit on the front porch. I sat on the deck and have a glass of wine and you talk to people and you talk to people you didn't used to talk to. So you're, uh, I'm, I'm learning, as you can tell by having gotten involved with me on this, I'm trying to learn how to do email and things because I didn't know how to do it. But being home, everybody had an opportunity to, to write you. I heard from people I haven't heard from in years. And, and it's been, on that level, it's been wonderful. So if, for example, the little virus came and said, you know, well, Nikki, what do you think? I'd say, well, I'd rather you didn't, you know, kiss me or bite me or whatever it is you do, because it doesn't always work. But I think that you've done a good job of, of making Earth come together 
and making us aware of the fact that we are one planet because the virus has gone all over. Everybody, people like that fool Donald Trump want to say, well, I can take care, which he didn't, of the United States and leave the rest of them alone. But the virus has, has shown us we are all one Earth and that which goes around comes to all of us. So I, I think uh, 2020 hasn't been nearly as bad. Plus, of course, United States elected Joe Biden, and, and that's good. And it's uh, certainly going to be my hope, and I think the hope of any other right-thinking American, that we prosecute Donald Trump. He, he's a crook and a Nazi. You know, it's so funny. I, I love that you brought up the election, because I, I have a question about the election, because this volume came out exactly two weeks before the election. And one of the poems that struck me in it, you know, is one in which you made a very poignant call for uh, voting rights, access, and participation. The poem is called Vote, as you know. (laughs) Um, But you wrote, and I love this line, it's not cookies nor cake, but it is the icing that is so sweet. And I guess that resonated for me because You know, Black voters showed up in record numbers during this last election, and we thankfully tipped the scales away from the terrorism of Trump. But, you know, we are increasingly having to urge that participation every cycle. And with every cycle, there are less of us who have the lived context of the significance of the vote. You've always written and spoken openly about the experience of growing up through segregation and Jim Crow and the civil rights movement, which you reference again in this book. With Black voters in particular increasingly disenchanted and still disenfranchised, what argument do you make for us still valuing the right to vote and the participation in voting? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not going to make a... a oh. Okay? Uh, it, it, it's not about do I believe in America and, and it's just going to work. That's not the point. The point is you have a voice. And the same men, and, and that's, I, I had a talk with James Baldwin about this. The same men that come home and, and, and beat their wives will get up the next morning and smile at their boss whom they hate. So this isn't about, you know, what lie are you telling? This is about do your job. And we have been in America for, you know, 300 and something years. So we have to vote. It's not a question of will you, and, and, you know, you talk to people about this. Well, I don't know if one is better than another. Yes, you do. Don't, 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 don't even tell me that. You know that Donald Trump is, is a Nazi and he's even talking now about putting people in gas chambers. You know that. And so you know that whatever you're getting is going to be better than that. Will it be heaven? Will, will Jesus come down and kiss you? No, but you have to do your job. So the first thing you have to remember, I'm a Christian. And the first thing you have to remember is that, that Jesus when he was on the, on, out in, in the desert, said, get thee behind me, Satan. And so that's what our vote said to Donald Trump. Get thee behind me. I'm very happy. I'm a, a Delta, and I'm very happy to see our AKA mother, <laughs> Kamala <laughs> Harris. I'm, I'm very happy to see her become vice president. She probably saved Biden's life because if, <laughs> for obvious reasons. And I, I'm glad I'm, I'm interested in how that's going to work out. She's perfectly capable, and I'm glad to see her. The Divine Nine came through, and I thought that was absolutely what they should do. And, of course, in Georgia, you know, Stacey Abrams is just incredible. I, I was really hoping she'd be vice president. She's an incredibly smart woman, and she'll keep moving on. But you have to have a voice, and you have to use it. And it's not fair that 
people use their voice out in, in the street with people, you know, the, the gangs are, you know, every time I see a black boy being shot by another black boy, you know, you, you just want to shake him. If, if I knew, are you crazy? Are, are you thinking that white men are not killing enough black boys? Why, why are you doing that? You know, th this whole idea of a gang, you're supposed to take care. We are supposed to take care of each other and we are supposed to take care of our children and our family. That is what you're supposed to do. And a part of that is, of course, you have to, you have to vote. You have to put some people in office. And more and more, and this is one of the things that's making our um, white neighbors so nervous, is that we are taking over. We, we had a black president. We had Obama. And, of course, everybody loves Michelle. If you didn't like <laughs> Barack, everybody loves Michelle. She's, she's a grand old gal. And I think that's one reason that, that Queen Elizabeth doesn't want to die, because when, when she died, Queen Elizabeth's going to live forever. I think she has a deal with God. <laughs> <laughs> I do. And she she just said, well, if I go, I'll be the last, and she would be the last white woman that anybody cared about. And that's mm. going to leave yeah. Michelle as the most important black woman on earth. It, it It is. And everybody does love her. She's doing her job. Mm. She is doing her job. I think you, I mean, you know, you're, she actually was voted the most admired woman last year over Queen Elizabeth. So you have really? a definite point there. Yes. <laughs> there was a global poll and that like it comes out every year. And I remember reporting on it and I'm like, that, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> but good for Michelle. I, I just think it's so, I think it's wonderful. And yeah. we're doing what we should do. So you have to vote and it takes what? Five minutes. But mostly, of course, lately it's been taking hours. And you stand in line and it's been raining and it's cold. It's a lot of things. But the black community voted because when we were brought to America, we were not allowed to vote. And, and people who were trying to vote, I remember, of course, Fannie Lou Hamer and Miss Hamer, you know, organized the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and took a bus. And you know how much money they must have had. I mean, they, they were putting nickels and dimes together to rent a bus to go to Atlantic City. To say to, to Lyndon Johnson, who was the president then because it was 64, to say to Lyndon Johnson, you know, we should represent Mississippi, not those races. And you remember Lyndon said, well, why don't we give you two seats? Why don't we give you half of the seats? And we will, we will uh, work it out for the next election. And I'll always remember that Mrs. Hamer said, we didn't come here for no two seats. And she got on, I'm quoting her on that one, didn't come here for no two seats. And she got on the bus and went back. And of course, when, when they crossed the Mississippi line, they took her, the, the, the Klansmen, they took her off the bus and just beat her and beat her and beat her. And I've always said, if there's any part of me that is alive, take that part and let it vote. If I'm not mistaken, and I'm not a, a, a biologist, I think the last thing that dies in your body is your liver. And I have said to my son and to friends, as long as my liver is just just there, take that liver to the Pope, because Fannie Lou Hamer took a terrible beating so that I could have a vote. I have an obligation to Mrs. Hamer. It's that simple. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and 
producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Speaking of history, you were also a primary figure of the Black arts movement. And since then, there has perhaps never been a more exciting time to be a Black creator than right now. Do you see the potential for a renaissance of the Black arts movement? And if not, what do you think gets in our way? I I think that uh, one, I I don't want to correct you because I don't like to correct people when I I I, I don't like to be corrected. You can definitely correct us. If we go, (laughs) no, I don't. But if we go back to the Harlem Renaissance, and we have to, if we go back to the 20s, where Black Americans, some, had to leave the South because it just became too much. And they started to come north. They came to Detroit. They came to Chicago. They they came up to Wisconsin and things. And as they did that, they brought culture with them, Philadelphia. In, in Detroit, we're going to have the music that has gone all over the world. The, the, the Motown sound is all over the world. And I was recently uh, looking at, at a book on Patti LaBelle. I don't know if you remember Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. They became huge, huge LaBelle. Fan. Yes. And yeah, and Patti and them, which I have nothing against it, but the, for example, the big group was, was, uh, uh, the Supremes and they wore their little yeah. dresses and they were always so nice. And then LaBelle came in and they came in with their, they, they came in strong, you know, Boule Boucouche avec moi. That's why mm-hmm. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. And they changed how we looked at girl groups. So that sound also came. And so you're saying, is there a, a, a renaissance? The reality is we've never stopped. People have stopped paying, if I may, attention to us. And, and that's okay with me. But in terms of what Black Americans have done, if you, you just have to go back. And the renaissance, we could go beyond the renaissance, but you have to go because we could go to spirituals. But you have to go back to the Renaissance and to that music and to the dance. And we have to remember, though nobody wants to, there was a king, speaking of queens, there was a king of England who decided that he would rather not be king if he can't come to America. He married Wallace Simpson, if you recall, Edward. But what he did that was so funny, or not funny, but what nobody wants to admit is that he wanted to come to America so that he could sit with black people and drink and Mm -hmm. dance. That's what he did. He, he was he a partier. He didn't come up to do good work. He came <laughs> to be in Harlem and to enjoy and to be a part of the black community. And they're always trying to say, oh, I, I think he was in love. But I don't think he was in love with Wallace Simpson. I think he was in love with Mabel Mercer. I think he was in love with mm-hmm. the jazz that he was hearing. That's, I think he was in love with the fact that I can do something else. I can have, there's a pleasure. And if those people can bring this music then why should I stay in Europe and be bothered with the Nazis and be bothered with all of that? Why don't I go to America and find out how these black people are getting along and how they're doing that? I think we're fabulous because he did. He gave up a crown. He he gave up a crown to say, no, I'd rather be in Harlem. And that's where he was. Mm. (laughs) I'd also rather be in Harlem. Oh, yeah. I'm in Harlem right now. I know you are. I'm jealous. I'm in Chicago, which is, you know, it's it's the next best thing. (laughs) And, you know, Harlem is so important. And, of course, yeah. they, they stole Harlem. 
as you know, uh, on 125th and 7th Avenue was the most important bookstore in America, Michaud's Bookstore. And everybody went to Michaud's. We could have written a book about that. Everybody comes to Michaud's. If you wanted to see anybody, you go to Michaud's. I met Nina Simone in, 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 in Michaud's because yeah. I, you know, everybody would go up all the time. And of course, I did not know Mr. I did not know Malcolm X, but he would go up on everybody went to Michaud's. And so all of a sudden they decided, Oh no, we need to put a, a, a federal office building. And of course, Mr. Michaud is gone now, uh, unfortunately. And I think, um, I was about to say little Lewis, and that's so terrible because you can see my age. His son is Lewis also. He, he's Lewis Michaud and his son is Lewis. And, uh, we don't have, we don't have a decent bookstore, but they've been fighting bookstores, as you know, all the time. I live in a, in a town with two universities. Radford is, is our neighbor and I teach at Virginia Tech and we do not have a decent bookstore. Wow. That's the truth. We do not have a decent bookstore. We have a Barnes and Noble and they have some, but it's not, you know, how you used to have really good bookstores. Well, Michelle's bookstores or, uh, the Liberty House, you know, was a great bookstore or even going downtown. The Strand was a, you know, and mm-hmm. I say downtown, I mean downtown, uh, New York. You had great bookstores and more and more people are, are, are taking them back and they're saying, well, you don't really need a bookstore, but there's a big difference between and I'm sure you know what I mean, no no disrespect. But there's a, a lot of difference between a bookstore and looking up something online. There's a lot of difference between walking in a bookstore and one, just the smell of the books. Just the, it, it really, the books are living and you kind of feel embraced, you know? Now, I grew up going to the library every weekend of my childhood with my mother. I yep. loved the library. I loved bookstores. I loved getting lost in books when I was uh, young. So I totally, I totally understand what you're, what you're saying. Yeah. But one thing it is, you know, about how books are perceived now, like books are really measured in the modern context by their bestseller status. And sometimes they're being optioned for the screen before they're even published. What do you think of that and the impact it has on artistic output? And what do you tell young writers who have those ambitions? Well, I don't think much of it. I don't know how else to say that. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I don't think much of it. And I teach writing. And so one of the first things I, I ask my students is what is the number one bestseller? When I'm going, good morning. I'm Nikki Giovanni. You can call me Nikki because I'm not into Dr. Giovanni or something. If you don't know that I'm Dr. Giovanni, my telling you won't make it. <laughs> so I'm not dealing with that. And I say to them, what is the number one bestseller? Who can tell me the number one bestseller? And not one, and I'm talking years, not one can tell me the number one bestseller. So I said, you're in a writing class, so why would you want to have something that you don't know what it is, right? So the first thing you're going to learn, if you're going to put up with me, the first thing you're going to learn is we write to tell the truth and we write to leave out. It's our job. It's what we do to leave our footprint. We don't write we, we just don't write so that we can have a movie. We don't write so that we can have a bestseller because nobody knows. And the, the books that we read, what books are we reading now? We're reading books that are 200 years old. We, we, we all know fairy tales. We all know Aesop. Aesop is a thousand years old. We all know Little Red Riding Hood. We all know spirituals. We all know the stories that are told there. 
We all know Jane Eyre. We all know the, the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. We, we know the old stories. So if you know that, everybody knows uh, that other one too, Anne Frank. And I always mention that to them because when Anne Frank was writing her diary, the people said, oh, nobody's going to read this. Don't worry about it. Well, the world read it. And you have to remember as a writer, you're writing for the truth, for the possibility. And you don't know who's going to read it. It's going to be a hundred years before you become important. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and you have to think, I'm serious. If you don't think about it that way, you're going to push yourself into writing crap. And a lot of people do. So you ask me, what, 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 what do I suggest? I suggest you write a good book. And there are a lot of good books out there that, that, uh, that I really love. There's a young woman speaking of New York, um, uh, Renee Watson. I really love, uh, what she does, Pieces of Me. And mm. she writes YA. She writes young, young, uh, adult. Of course, my, my friend, and I love him so much, uh, Kwame Alexander. And he writes young, you know, young writers, you know, the crossover. And, I think that, that what they're doing, who knew that you're going to have a bestseller or who knew that this was going to win an award? What you did was you wrote a book that was meaningful to you. You wrote your story. And that's what I try to tell my students. And obviously, uh, it's what I am fortunate enough, what I remember. I, I write the book that, that makes sense to me. And sometimes they do very well and sometimes they they don't, but I always feel good about it. It's like, yeah, it was a good book, and go on and write the next one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess on that note, I have to ask you, you know, since you are an educator as well as such a prolific writer, you know, about craft. You know, what what does that look like to you now, and what do you suggest to your students? I mean, are, are you a person who writes every day? Oh, no. Uh, my friend, speaking of Kwame, Kwame Alexander writes every day, and uh, <laughs> he tickles me. Oh, Lord, I... I love him. I taught him and he's doing it incredibly well, but he gets up at five o'clock in the morning. And I said to him every morning, he gets up at five o'clock. He writes for three hours. I said, you know, you're lucky that we're friends that I'm not married to you. Cause if I was married to you, I'd divorce you <laughs> getting up at that hour <laughs> to do something. Uh, I, I think, I think the most important thing that you have to remember is that nobody except maybe Kwame writes every day, but you should read every day. There should be something that you read every day. A book. I read at least the comics every day. You know, I, I love pickles. <laughs> you should read something because reading is, is more important, really, than writing. And reading will bring you in. I happen to also be, uh, as, as you may or may not know, a real jazz fan. Make Me Rain is a, is an old jazz tune. It, it wasn't a hit, but it is a jazz tune. And I listen a lot to jazz because what jazz does is is improvise. They change things around. Thelonious Monk said, the piano, and I will quote Mr. Monk, the piano don't have no wrong notes. And I thought about that. I, I'm, I'm a big Monk fan. And I thought, well, that's the same with poetry. Poetry doesn't have any wrong words. It just has a word that hasn't found its home. And so I, I try to... I try to share that with my students or with people I'm talking, I'm talking to you. There, there's no such thing as, as, as a bad poem. It's a poem that the words haven't found their home. That's a beautiful way to put it. So yes. all my childhood poetry, they're just words that couldn't find the, where they, their home. I understand now. That makes, yeah. That's such a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. Um, 
So one of the things that always strikes me uh, in your writing, Nikki, is how food is obviously a joyful part of your life. Um, it's a regular motif in this latest collection. Fried chicken perhaps makes the most appearances, which has its own connotations in Black American culture, but was deeply affirming for me because I love to fry me some chicken. Yes, you like, do. Let's <laughs> see if I'm having company. That's the main thing people want me to make. They want me to fry chicken so my house can smell like chicken grease for three days because I live in a New York apartment. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but you know, it was deeply affirming to me, you know, because um, it, it's one of my specialties. And I, I would like it, Nikki, if you could talk about why you consider food to be so integral to the Black American experience and why does it feature so heavily in your work? Well, it's the one thing, I shouldn't say the one thing because music also, but food brings us together. And if I ask anybody, if I stop somebody in the street and said, what do you remember most about your life? You know, let's, let's just say you're 40 years old. What do you remember? They'll say my grandmother's cake or my grandmother, you know, they'll remember some, some food. And I wrote about it because uh, it, it touched me. The two foods that there are a lot of things with food, but the two foods that I always think about, of course, are peanuts. And I always think when I think of peanuts, I always think of, of, of the African wars because they were African wars and we don't deal with that historically as much as we should. And I always can see a mother, and it's because I am one of a son, sending her son to her grandmother, to her mother, to try to save him. When the grandmother realizes that she cannot save her son. She puts a peanut in his, in his hand. It always makes me cry, actually. And she says, remember me. And peanuts, we brought peanuts to America. I live in Virginia. And of course, when he came here, he planted. Now, Virginia will say, we're the peanut state, but they're not. Because what brought that here was that black boy. I always see a black boy. And the other thing that I think about, of course, and it, it, it too, it brings tears to my eyes, and I apologize for that, is okra. Because I always see a grandmother putting okra, putting an okra seed in her granddaughter's hand and saying, take it, keep it. And I see both of those people, and that's going to be in New Orleans, as you know. And I see Virginia and New Orleans becoming, which they have, the food capitals that they are because of what the Black grandmothers did with their grandsons and granddaughters trying to save them. So I talk about food a lot because it's a metaphor. And a, a lot of you eat it, but there's more to it than what you eat. There, there, there's, there's that remembrance, you know, and uh, of course, thanks. Oh gosh, I, I'll end up crying here. But the last Thanksgiving, I'm 77 years old. And the last Thanksgiving that I remember is the one with my grandparents. And that was almost 60 years ago. Because my grandfather, I, they didn't know I was coming. I, I was in college and I caught a ride. I was in, I, I went to Fisk University and I caught a ride from Nashville. My grandparents, I lived with them in, in Knoxville and I had a friend who was, whose father was going to bring her. So I caught a ride and grandmother and grandpapa didn't know that I was coming. And of course I used to live with them, but now having come for a holiday, I became company. And my grandmother used to always just eat in the kitchen. I mean, they ate. But now that I was coming, she put the, the dining room table and she took the good dishes. And it, 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 it touches me so much. Grandpapa died 
three months after that. If I had not gone, I would never have seen him. He would have died. I would not have seen him. And I was glad that I, I was glad that I went. But it was so funny because now I'm considered, my grandmother considers me company <laughs> and she wants to take care of me. It's, it, it was the right thing for me to do too. I got kicked out of school, by the way, which was probably a good idea. I didn't care. But, um, uh, I know a lot of Thanksgiving since then, but I couldn't begin to tell you because I don't care about the rest of them. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't remember the rest of it. I, I know I had Thanksgiving with my mother, but the one that I remember was with grandmother and grandpapa. And it, they're, they're just things that it's not just the food. It's, it's, it's the people that you're with. Mm. It, that's what makes it, uh, that makes it work. Plus I'm a good cook. I'm sorry. <laughs> that always makes me cry because I, we just no, came through okay. Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, yeah. it's, I completely it's, understand. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, yeah. uh, there is a visceral emotional memory there, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, why we asked the question. But, you know, on the subject of memory, you did something remarkable in your last book on the subject of crying, even, which was called A Good Cry, you know, where you really explored <laughs> this concept of, of grief, right? And catharsis and, you know, you paid tribute to some of your close friends and contemporaries who've crossed over in recent years. You know, Maya Angelou, you paid tribute to in that last book. And in this one, you know, there are tributes to Toni Morrison and Entezaki Shange. And, you know, and you even talk about the inevitability of your own transition at some point, right? So obviously, none of us can escape that. I mean, that's, that's all of us have that inevitability. And this year has kind of confronted a lot of us with that. And I, you know, as much as we're talking about crying and, and, and grief now, you have centered joy a lot as well. Like, do you have any advice or thoughts on, on, on processing grief? Well, I've learned, um, that you have to allow yourself to cry. As you can see now, <laughs> I'm thinking about things. But when I was growing up, um, to understate it, my parents had a difficult marriage and, I was very fortunate to to be able to go live with my grandmother that I finally realized I couldn't live with my parents anymore. But I held things in, and I was always a kid that held things in. I wrote a good cry because I had a seizure about five years ago now. I had a seizure. And my doctor, I laugh about it, but my doctor, like all doctors, you know, if you're a woman and, and you have something, a seizure or something, they say, well, you eat too much salt. I mean, that's the first thing they say. And I said to my doctor, he's a great guy, Gregory, and I said to Gregory, no, I have a seizure because I've been holding things in, and mm-hmm. I think I need to let things out. I said, I'm going to do you a favor. Gregory's really nice. I said, I'm going to do you a favor, Gregory. I'm going to give you a, a, a procedure. I have a seizure, but we're going to call it the NICI. And when anybody else comes in here that has a seizure, you can tell them, oh, you've got the NICI, and that'll make them feel better. He said... He said, no, 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 that's not. I said, it is. But I realized that I needed to learn to cry to let it out. And I think that that's true of men and women, that you have to let things out. But I was 70 years old before I allowed that to happen. I, if I hadn't had the seizure, I probably would still be holding things, holding things in. I think a lot of people, which I don't uh, do, I don't do drugs, you know, but I think a lot of people do, do drugs and especially soldiers and stuff, uh, because they can't let it out. But they need to learn to cry. And I think that grief is necessary. It's it's what you do. I like, uh, I really like garden, 
I think gardening is helpful, but I think it's okay to cry. And I, and I think that you have to allow yourself to do that. That's just me. But as I said, I was 70 years old before I knew that. <laughs> so you can see how, how much I know, you know. Well, no, I can totally relate. I mean, both my parents, um, they're, my father is close. My father's a year older than you, and he's very stoic. Um, he's, you know, he, and it's how he was raised. And so I, I'm a crier. I cry really easy. I cry all the time. Same. Commercials make me cry. <laughs> you know, like everything <laughs> makes me cry. I'm very emotional. And I remember my parents trying to like de-emotionalize me. Like they were just like, no, we don't like this. Cause we're, you know, good Southern black folks who don't show our emotions. You keep yeah. that bottled up. And I just was never able to do it. So. Well, that's good. But you know, look at what, Speaking of the Southern, uh, there's a wonderful poet. His name is Kwame Dawes. And I, I don't know if you know him, but he talks, it's, it's beautiful. And he talked about, can you imagine? And it is, I'm, I'm not doing service to the poem, but can you imagine having to cut your husband or your brother or your son down from a tree and to wipe the spit off of him? So that you can bury him where, where he has been abused and, and murdered. And you have to learn. I can't cry about that. My job is to clean him up and to let him go on to Jesus, to, to let him be ready. And I think, I think Southerners, and I'm a Southerner, I'm a Tennessean. I think that we have had so many things and we know hold it in and, and, and move it on, hold it in and move it on. And, then we finally got, that's why we like your generation, that we finally, uh, and that's true, we finally got far enough along that you can have an emotional life. But people my age pretty much didn't. If you think of it, just think of it. They, they, we, we, we just couldn't do it. We, we, had to, we had to stop the craziness around us. And it's mm -hmm. one reason that when you looked at the voting, now we're back to voting, but when you looked at the voting lines, you saw older people. You saw some younger people, but you saw older people because we finally knew we now have crossed over. We have to make that statement. And we're, we're opening up a, a, a door for your generation. That's why probably everybody my age feels so strongly about you all using that, whether it's a vote, but whatever it is, we have opened a door and we want you all to go through it. It's going to be a different world, of course. But we want we want you to know we're here. We love you. But we probably have done most of what we can do. We can vote, so we did. That's the truth. But the rest of you, we, we're, we're pulling for you. Now I'm crying. Oh. <laughs> oh, no, it's beautiful. You know, and it resonates so well. I know that Maisha probably feels the same way in that our parents and what they went through in their struggle and our grandparents and what they went through in their struggle led to all the opportunities that we get to enjoy today. And so it makes sense that we want to keep pushing forward. We want to keep, you know, progressing as a people and to keep fighting uh, until, you know, we have equality in this country and we have peace in our communities. And so I'm, I'm going through the door. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going through it. And I, I am right there, the right there with you, my friend. Right there with you. Nikki, thank you so much for so joining much. us at It's Lit. This was like so affirming and beautiful as, you know, you did not disappoint. 
Absolutely uh-huh. not. Absolutely not. Never, never do. Never do. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's my pleasure. And I, uh, I thank you for inviting me. You know, I think life is a good idea. And so I'm always, uh, <laughs> going to recommend life. And I think that old age is a good idea. I really, really do. And, it's aspirational. Uh, <laughs> it is because, I you know, once you do that, old age. <laughs> you can say to yourself, you know, once you cross that 50, someplace, then you can say to yourself, not that I've done everything, but I've done my job. I did what I was supposed to do. And now I can, I can figure out where, where I want to go. And I think I'm very lucky because I, at one, I like music and, and I write poetry and I love, uh, I love black people. So I, what more do we want? And I fry good chicken, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to fry some chicken tonight in your honor. You do it. Oh, you thank do you. It. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, ladies. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Spread the word. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what are you getting into these days? You know, I am uh, getting into the Christmas spirit. <laughs> so I admittedly, I, my reading's been all over the place, but um, I actually have been reading children's books because I have little ones in my life. And so I've been kind of screening a few things that I'm going to put in a box and send to my niece and nephew and my godson, actually. And I've been really into a kid's book about series. Um, This is an amazing series that was founded by a Black writer and dad, Jelani Memory. And, you know, what he's done is he's written his own uh, volumes in the series, but he's also recruited a range of writers to write about various topics that are sometimes difficult conversations for parents to have with kids, whether it's on systemic racism or empathy or feminism or anxiety, you know, which is something we're all feeling a lot of these days. So I am sending a book of these to my niece and nephew and my godson this holiday season. And I'm I'm actually really excited that these exist. What are you reading, Danielle? You're always reading something great. You know, I'm trying to get into some Sheila Bridges interior design right now. Yes. You know, because I'm redecorating my Harlem apartment. Sheila Bridges lives in Harlem. Are you getting so, some Harlem you know. twall? I am a huge Sheila Bridges fan. 
She's she's amazing. So I'm doing a little research because you know I'm doing a little little uh, something something in the apartment. But much like you, I'm also getting in the Christmas spirit. I have a nephew, and he loves to read because he takes after his favorite aunt. Look at that. <laughs> actually, I'm not his favorite aunt. I'm his second favorite. He is too. <laughs> Doesn't he only uh, have one two? One that actually lives in St. Louis that can play with him every weekend, as opposed to me who shows up about twice a year with <laughs> presents. So I've bribed him into loving me. It's great. So I bought him a bunch of the Bad Guys books, which are very popular with the little kitties these days. They're illustrated. They're funny. They're very sweet. So I'm hoping he will love them like he loves his auntie who buys him things. And that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Keep it lit. <laughs>